I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome everyone to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure um, to welcome you all here and see a really full room tonight for Matthias Enar and his new book, the annual banquet of the Grave Diggers Guild, which I will look at to make sure I've got the title correct. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you back. Thank you for being here. Um, it's going to be in conversation with Chris Power, who it's also like a real delight to, to see back again. Thanks, Chris. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm extremely excited to be here tonight with uh, Matthias Enar, author of stunning, wildly inventive and immersive novels such as Zone and Street of Thieves, Telma Battles, Kings and Elephants. Matthias's body of work drips, drips with prizes. <laughs> I can't often say that to uh, people I'm talking to, including the Prix Décembre, the Premio Gregor von Retsori and the big one, the Prix Goncourt for Compass. We're here tonight to talk about his hugely absorbing and cosmic new novel, The Annual Banquet of the Gravediggers Guild, which we or many of us will be reading in Frank Wynne's wonderful translation. So the novel's scope is, is intimate in one sense, taking us to the village of Lapierre-Saint-Christophe in the marshlands of Western France, and in the words of one character, far enough in the arse end of nowhere to be interesting, and concentrating intently on the, the patterns of life and work to be found there. But it's also epic. It describes battles between the, the Franks and the Goths and the retreat from Dunkirk and a gypsy's peregrinations from Albania to France and in typical Enardian fashion, much, much more. Um, I think it's very appropriate that we should, we should be talking on, uh, on All Hallows' Eve when the border between the living and the dead is at its, at its thinnest. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, any dead in tonight? Um, because that, that border proves very permeable in the book. Um, but before we get to that, I think we should begin in a very, very unsupernatural way. Um, the book begins with the, the journal of one David Mazon, 
who's newly arrived in the village. Who is David and what, what's he looking for? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Chris, for chairing this event. I'm very happy to be here back in London again after four or five years, don't remember. And uh, very, very happy to see you all. <laughs> and it's very important to me that this book got translated into English because it's my very French book. And it's about, it's a kind of uh, story of, of France and seen from another very strange perspective, let's say, and with a slight angle to, to the universe. But um, starting with David, David, David Mazon is about, I don't know, 28 something when we begin to read his journal. And uh, he's writing his PhD as an anthropologist uh, who just got uh, money to, to write his PhD in, in a small village of Western France. So we see him arrive at La Pierre Saint Christophe and he's our eyes in this small village uh, through his, his journal. It's, his journal is a part of his thesis, actually. It's uh, uh, like uh, anthropologists say, it's field writing. And so his masters are Lévi-Strauss and, um, and Mayan Malinowski. And he's, he thinks he's like all of us. You know, when you begin something, you, you're so sure you're very good at it, you know, and you... Uh, so he thinks himself as a new Malinowski or the new Lévi-Strauss, and he's sure he's making great, great investigation. And we realize through his journal that he doesn't know nothing at the end. You know, <laughs> uh, but he's, we, we, we meet David at the beginning and we will see him again at the end. So he's uh, really the main character, of, uh, for me, of, of the banquet. Mm. And through him, we get to meet all the important people of the of the village. Could we hear a little bit from his from his journal? So that's um, an entry of the January the eighth, I think, at the end. After lunch. Black pudding and mashed potatoes with Gary and Mathilde. I'm a long way for turning ve- from turning vegan. Lunch during which we spent relating our game hunting exploits. I suspect the tale of the boot in the mud will get round the whole village. I texted Lucy about three o'clock to see if she had some time for the afternoon. She texted back to say she had to pick cabbages and leeks for the Sunday market and suggested I come along. I have to say I thought long and hard. It's all very well yumping about in the mud, with or without a dog, but you need to make progress on your thesis, David, so you have to make sacrifices. I put on my Nikes. I'm done with boots. Stradled Rossinanti and rode off to Mopa on the Marais-Poitvin road, where Lucy's land, well... Technically, it belongs to her ex, I think. Lies on the border between the Deux Sèvres and the Vendée. Remember to ask her whether there's any difference in terms of soil, regulations, subsidies, etc. A 20-minute ride later, I was learning to cut cabbages and pull leeks. A very agreeable activity. 
such joy to be in a large field sheltered by hedgerows from the wind, feet planted in the cool, dark soil speckled orange with a few discarded carrots, cloaked in the vivid green of cabbages, brassica oleracea capitata, with your hands among the leeks. It feels like being in an enchanted land. Let you seize peacefully over winter in polytunnels, safe from the frost. Heads of Cali are lush and curly. Swiss card in white, yellow and red cultivars blooms in glorious sprays. It didn't feel like it, but we worked for at least two hours. I must have pulled about 40 leeks and 20 cabbages. Lucy truly has the body of an athlete. She offered me a basket of vegetables. Dare tell her I hadn't a clue what to do with them. It's insane that I have a degree in rural agriculture and I don't know how to make a soup. <laughs> But then again, what are we taught in our tutorials? How many pages did Bourdieu devote to soup? <laughs> There's ma there might be one or two in Jean-Pierre Le Goff, Victor, in Jean-Pierre Le Goff, Victor Hugo, on the other hand, is constantly writing about soup. About food. That's the example I need to follow. I'll get cooking and write to Calvet to ask if it's, and I write to Calvet to ask if he's got a receipt for garburant. I can't just throw the vegetables out. I suppose I could give them to Mathilde. Or I could pull my finger out, download a recipe app, and learn how to make fucking soup. <laughs> Found a recipe in 93. A soup made from water, oil, bread, and salt. A little lard, a small piece of lamb. All right, I give in. I'll give the vegetables to Mathilde. Sorry. Thank you, Matthias. Uh, no, thank Victor you. Victor Hugo is good for something, good for soup recipes. He's good, at least good for soup recipes, <laughs> yes. Um, he has a few books too. <laughs> <laughs> so every review I've read of this novel describes David as intolerable, and the, the book itself does at certain points, but I found him to be very good company. Um, did you enjoy yes. writing him with all his, all his faults? Yes, he's very, I mean, for me, it's very sympathetic. It's, it's a kind of, He's probably my favorite character with uh, with Lucy. Mm. Lucy is more uh, me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I I imagine Lucy with a lot of autobiographical details from from my mm -hmm. my childhood. But David is is very sympathetic because he's taking everything so seriously, you know, and uh, like everything is very important. Like he knows. He has the feeling he can't change the world in a way, and and somehow he will. So he will change himself and and try to make the place where he lives a better place. So that's that's um, that makes him quite sympathetic at the end. And you know I, what I love about academics, they're known to the, uh, I'm supposing. <laughs> uh, what I love about uh, people who who are like interested in, in science and, and being very serious and that at the end they're not, you know, and they can, they can see the world with all their knowledge and, but 
then forgive, uh, forget all about their knowledge about what they know and enter the real world, uh, like new, like David does. Mm. You know, and when I, I first started to write about David in this journal, I said, um, how could I describe to myself the, the annual banquet of the Great Guilds? It could be the story of, like, you know, remember Marcel Proust, no? La Recherche du Temps Perdu, it's the story of Marcel becoming a writer. So here is the story of David becoming a farmer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful journey. Um, he calls the rooms where he's lodging the savage mind. He's like, I'm going back to the savage mind. Um, and the novel is dedicated to... It's a bit pretentious, to... let's call it. <laughs> sure. But, yes. well, you tell me if yes. it is. But he, the novel's dedicated to the savage thinkers. He's and French, those after are... all. You did... <laughs> let's not go there. Okay. so early. Come on. Um, this... this like Savage Mind, this sort of reference to Claude Lévi-Strauss, yes, um, La Pensée Sauvage. Mm-hmm. What defines savage thinking for you? How, do you? how does it relate to this, this novel? Well, it was a joke at first, but then, you know, the, the, the place, this uh, Pensée Sauvage, the Savage Mind, or Savage Thinking, exists. It's a, a refuge for writers in the east of France. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I, I myself began to write. This, this book. So it was also um, a way to say thank you to, to those people by mentioning them. And then I realized that I, I, I was very interesting in see how those thinkers from the 60s, 50s and 60s, like Lévi-Strauss, could be read again today. And because it's very problematic, no, to this difference uh, this hierarchy between uh, savage and uh, and civilized mm. and problems of civilization. What does it mean? Even by their writing, they are like boning um, their views upon what they're seeing. That's what Levi Strauss himself says. And so I say, what would that be applied to a very small village in Western France, where there's no uh, without, let's say, the, the post-colonial dimension and uh, from equal to equal. What, mm. How would you... S- but conserving this kind of, of uh, possibility of, of uh, uh, looking at the other as, as other, you know, seeing it as very distant in his way of life and day-to-day life, only that they're well, normal French people of no day. So uh, it was quite funny to imagine this kind of, of twist into reality or thinking. And this part of France, so Western France, you were, you were born in Niort, yes, right. which is the regional capital mm-hmm. of this, this area where David goes to. Did you spend all your childhood there? Did you grow up? Yes, yes. In fact, actually, until I was 18, uh, that's when I left to Paris to learn Arabic at the university, Arabic and Persian, and then go away and, and uh, write very well, different books about yeah. very different matters. Uh, but no, no, that's, that's right. This book is also, it's not autobiographical, but it has some minor details about my childhood. Your novels, I mean, they cover a, a vast swathe of, of time and space, and they typically take place outside France, mm-hmm. in a very sort of, uh, particularly sort of all around the Mediterranean. But 
did you know or suspect that at some point you'd write about where you came from or was it a surprise to you? No, but, you know, uh, I think the first draft, the first ideas about uh, this book came right after Zone. It was maybe because I had this long travel around the Mediterranean Sea that I wanted somehow to to come home and, and, and write about uh, this region. And then, but it was like 20-something years after I left. You know? So I had spent more time outside than inside France and, and in this region. So I wanted to have like a, a new look and see it in different ways. And uh, not as the child I was, but I... The grown-up, been travelled a bit and and written a bit about something else, mm. and go back to this setting to see it's in a way in a new to learn something about it too and about myself, about where I come from. Because it's not really easy. You've lived there for twenty years and you, you realise that you don't really know nothing about <laughs> the the place where you spend your childhood at the end. So. And um, the people there at first were very happy about it. I mean, my mother was very happy about it. <laughs> and then when she read the book, not so much. She was concerned about <laughs> what, what people would think about, um, <laughs> yes, uh, what I say, when, uh, the way I describe them. Um, but no, it, it, it went okay. There were many, many people at the... Uh, the presentation in in own we were surprised that I could uh, interest myself for very small farming details or uh, very local history because mm. that was the 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 main let's say I had two things in mind I wanted to write this story about David becoming a farmer and but I wanted to sort of write a kind of uh, history of France you know uh, and uh, it's not easy to say well. France has a huge history, we all know. But, but seeing it from a point where you know that almost nothing happened. What would be history there, seen from there? No? And then I realized that this part of France, that's the place, all the book is between, let's say, between Loire and Gironde, those two rivers. No? And I realized that until... Uh, that it was... Very, very important for this whole history of France and also for the history of the relations between uh, England and France, between uh, uh, there were many wars and the religion wars were there, that they also the Arabs you know, were stopped, so to say, in, at Poitiers in mm. 732. That's like a couple of miles from, from where David lives. So um, it's my main idea was to see how I could um, make literature out of it, no? Uh, a kind of archaeology uh, starting from today that would tell me um, or reveal a bit my own relationship to this country, no? How, how could I see it? Mm-hmm. Also, literary-wise, what's, what does it mean to write about your homeland? No? And uh, as it about the language too is about there's a whole part of this about the history of uh, of French literature from Troubadour until Victor Hugo and more and so I was really 
investigating, not like David in the, uh, let's say, human sciences point of view, but also in a very literary way. Love that you try and write about something where, where nothing happened and you find all of European <laughs> yes. history, all of Middle Eastern history. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point in the book, we, we move away from David and his journal and we start to learn that the inhabitants of Lapierre Saint-Christophe um, have lived many times and will live yes. many more. Gary, for example, he's a guy called Patrice, but everyone calls him Gary. Um, I love Gary. He's a... Uh, He's been, and this is a quote from the book, he's been the strong-minded landlady of a bar in Lezay, a leather worker in a factory in Niort who died in childbirth, a bombardier from La Chapelle Baton who died of Spanish flu in a Reims field hospital, a one-eyed well digger from Rouvre who died in 1896, aged 100, and a grey she-wolf. What did you want to explore through, through the use of reincarnation in this book? First of all, reincarnation is a great trick for a writer because, of course, you can link all those things to one character. So from the characters of nowadays, La Pierre Saint-Christophe, I could go back to a wolf during the French Revolution That's um, very easily, or to a, a bad bug that bites Napoleon and, <laughs> uh, at one point. So it was... Uh, it made like a very it, history, like a very ductible matter. You could do anything with it, like go back and forth. But then I was fascinated by the idea, you know, my, my wife is a Buddhist and I, for, she's been a Buddhist for like 20 more years. So um, I have a lot of contacts with uh, Buddhist thinking and theory and philosophy. I've read quite a bit myself. And the idea, how would a, um, a Buddhist narrator see this village in France? It was quite <laughs> fascinating to see. Yes, of course, if this exists, its reincarnation is real, then we could describe any place like this. Like all our reincarnations are infinite, you know, for, according to the Buddhists. So. Of course, even in, in the small place called La Pierre Saint-Christophe, everybody has lived an infinity of lives. And uh, it was frightening to think like this, but it was also very interesting because it changes a lot our relationship, not only to history or to our personal history, but also to nature. Mm. Because they reincarnate themselves in, also into animals. Not only mammals, but also plants and bugs and so on. So we are not the lords of nature anymore. We are really part of it. And, and that was the, the bit of change of perspective that I, that I needed also to write the book. So it was convenient for the writing, for linking things to one, to one another, but it was also very interesting um, philosophically wise to think nature in another way mm. you make it sound very appealing as well as long as you don't murder anyone and come back as a worm <laughs> who then gets killed with bleach by david in his shower um yeah it kind of appeals um so we can't talk for long about this but without talking about the centerpiece which is this this three-day banquet and this is a time when when death agrees to a truce, which gives these sort of semi-supernatural figures of these grave diggers who keep popping up, these, these long-faced men. Mm. They're called shepherds of the motionless, you call them at one point, which I love. Um, it gives them the opportunity to eat and drink themselves 
into oblivion, basically, for three days. And it's a really rich piece of writing with speeches and quotations from classical texts and rhyming couplets and very evocative language. Some of the, the phrases I think people should, should be aware of is uh, churn-curdled bollock batter, to swive the split fig, quivering the quillilillies. In fact, I looked up quite a lot of words in this section and they all meant penis, every single <laughs> one. Um, what I wanted to ask, though, is, where, is there a basis in folklore for this banquet, or did you, did you invent it? Well, first of all, I want to, to thank Frank Wen for this, that, because the, the, it was very difficult to translate, because it's full of exploration of uh, French language and all the possibilities like, to, to, to describe food or... Mm. Um, or cheese, or wine, or also uh, penis. And um, so the, the banquet, first of all, I have to say something about those grave diggers. Um, that was a long time ago. It was like 10 years ago. I went to Prague once, and, and uh, like everybody, I, I visited all the Kafka places and, and the synagogues. And near one of the synagogues, there's a small house in front of the, of the Jewish cemetery, that was the house of the Gravediggers Guild. And they had an exhibition of paintings. Um, and so, uh, painting of the 18th century. With, and once, it was paintings of the banquets of the, of the Gravediggers Guild. And it explained that every year, to forget their sad, their very sad job, they gave themselves three days of banquet. And I said, oh, that's great. <laughs> and so I, I went a bit further and imagined that um, no one dies during three days, so the grave diggers can, can rest and can have a banquet and can enjoy themselves. That's the center of the book. But they're always there, you know, you see them. You know. uh, David sees the, 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 the grave diggers in the cemetery, his friend with the... Um, the undertaker of the of the village, and that was very very fun, very interesting to investigate. And and I remember I went to a, a congress in Paris that it was like the undertaker's fair, a world fair in Paris. So I, I paid a lot of money to get in there, <laughs> and but it was fascinating. And I, I discovered that coffins are not what you think. No. Nowadays they have like connected coffins. For two reasons. First of all, because the, uh, you can use, at, at the funeral parlor, you can have internet into the coffin, so you can put music on or, or put some, <laughs> yes, uh, and with a small screen, you can also put uh, images of, uh, of your lost ones and things like that. But also, for people who are afraid of being buried alive, which I discovered there are many people afraid of being buried alive and wake up into the tomb, like in your coffin, and you realize you're not dead, but you cannot go out, then you have internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can communicate. You're not... You know, this exists. I'm not making that up. Right? It's, it's real. And there was also another part, very interesting, apart from the coffin models. Um, it was organic, organic cemeteries, organic coffins... And uh, very, very, it was, it's, there's one organic graveyard, for example, in, in, in Niort, 
the city, that's the capital, the region of the book. That means that you're buried in uh, no clothes or only um, organic cotton, things like that. So like, the body itself is like quite organic at the beginning. Also, the coffin is only wood without any paint or glue or anything. Into a land that is natural and you don't have the right to put any stone on it. No. Well, only some wooden name, well, some name on, on some piece of wood that would eventually disappear, you know, in a, in a couple of years. So that's the, the let's say, the organic uh, funeral. So that, that was really fascinating for a writer to see, wanted to write about, about grave diggers and, um, and reincarnation and the grave diggers banquet to see that, that it exists. Well, that there's all this, this, uh, profession is really active and thinking about their, their future and, and new coffin models and things like that. So it was, it was absolutely fascinating. But my grave diggers are more, they have this long, sad, faces, uh, but during three or four days, they give us a very good time. <laughs> and what do they talk about? Well, they talk about death and life. So they go back to what was the, the first philosophical banquet, you know. And, uh, you remember Platon's banquet, of course. At the beginning, uh, Socrates uh, well, he washes his feet to go because he has dinner at Agaton and he goes to Agaton's place. And then the first thing he said, said, oh, I'm on a very huge hangover from yesterday. So we have to uh, make rules, decide rules about drinking. And they all, they all agreed, no, tonight we'll be okay. Our second night, uh, hangover night. So we will drink, but not too much. At the end, they're all drunk. Okay, but it takes longer, so they 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 can talk about uh, eros and and what it means in the in Platon's market. And here they talk about more about death and uh, and what it is to be dead because that's the profession. And they also <laughs> because I imagine that it's a guild, like you know, medieval kind of association. There are many of them in France, not only for grave diggers but for any profession. And so they they have like an agenda. They say, well, today we must discuss this and that and the, the subject. So first of all, they have to decide if they accept women in their profession. Because some of them want to spare women from the, this very sad uh, profession and working with the dead. And some others say, no, it's, well, let's have equality. So that's the first subject. And then uh, later on, it switches to dialogues between them about poetry, life, and death. Like we all do when we're drunk, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, as you said, that, that section sort of, it, it, it churns through all these different literary modes and styles. Um, Francois Rabelais is very yes. present in it. Um, I think they're, they're having the feast in, the, in an abbey, a ruin mm. of an abbey where he once taught. Um, and a lot of the time when a work is called, you know, Rabelaisian, it's because of a certain kind of excess and bawdy attention to the flesh and the fleshly processes and defecation and ejaculation and all that stuff, of which there is plenty. But there's also, <laughs> they're also yeah. telling stories about Gargantua, right? Like yes. one of Rabelais' 
creation. So why did you want to reference him so explicitly? What, well, what does he First of all, because it's, it's very, very local, you know, uh, uh, François Rabelais, because I, I wanted to, to I investigate a bit my, my, who were the authors or poets or writers who, in, in this region. And of course, Rabelais was the, the greatest of all. And followed by a um, uh, few poets, and, but uh, Rabelais is also very important because he's um, the first real novelist into French language, and uh, he's very totally free, you know. Because even the French, um, the language he manages it, he uses himself, was not invented. It means it's he decided to use this or that word, but there were local words, other words from other places. At that time, there were no real, uh, let's say, French language in itself. So he was totally free. And he was free also to tell stories, folk legends, like Gargantua. Gargantua is a, is a character that preexisted to Rabelais. Uh, Rabelais used it into, and put it into his novels. So um, he used folklore, he used uh, um, all the French words, strange French words he could find all over the France. So um, for me, it was very interesting. And this abbey is, it exists, it's a beautiful mm. place called Maize, in the middle of these marshes. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on the internet reading yeah. this book and checking okay. out, the words, not just researching different words for penis, but looking up, uh, looking up the sights and sounds as well. We must talk about food at this banquet yes. because there's a lot of space given over to food and langoustines drowned in mayonnaise and riette tartine and deviled eggs and oysters or gratin all washed down with countless bottles of wine and there's 99 grave diggers at this banquet and at one point there are 99 different cheeses on there mm. might be the most french thing i've ever read in my life is i wrote i wrote in the margin hymns to cheese um it's a ridiculous question to ask a frenchman particularly a frenchman i think owns a restaurant, um, but how, how important is, is fine food? And was this, was this like everything you like to eat? or were you, were No, you... not at all. I, I, I hate cheese, for example. <laughs> uh, wow. And that was like a curse because after the book, everywhere I went, everybody wanted to offer me cheese and, <laughs> and say, oh, in, in our region we have this cheese you didn't mention in the book, <laughs> but it's very good too. And I said, no, no, for me cheese is a very literary matter because it's all... <laughs> Uh, like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> colors and forms and, you know, like even the one with the moisture in it, you know, you can, it's green and then you have like this, this yellow paste and somehow pyramids, some other uh, uh, cylinders, you have everything. So it was very fun to describe <laughs> yeah. really what cheeses are. And then now there are local dishes and I make fun with them saying that, uh, of course, you, if you if you're writing about uh, banquet in France, then you have frog legs. Yeah. I've never eaten frog legs in my life. No, but I had to add them. I mean, they, they had to be there. No, like frog legs, uh, because the, this, those marshes were until well, thirty, forty years ago were filled with. Um, with uh, frogs, and they used to fish frogs or hunt frogs, I don't know. And, uh, but nowadays they're gone, then, you know, they disappeared mm. like so many species that are um, 
probably because we ate them all out. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, there are many, many French, lo- very local things, by the way. So even for, for the people outside this region, for France, it was quite exotic to see that what you could do with <laughs> some products. But wines were really interesting to write about, too. Um, you don't hate wine? I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> uh, but wine was also very literary in the, because that allowed me because there are no wines in this region. Well, there used to be, but now and uh, it's only you have the wine on the Vallée de la Loire on the, on the Loire in the north. But really, in those marshes, you can't have really good wines. So it was a um, a way to to include all parts of France in this banquet, like mm-hmm. cheese where, you know. And um, inside France, I included Belgium and Switzerland and part of Italy, because why not? <laughs> I should take the best of every place. <laughs> so um, that was fun to write. Too. Yeah. Mm. We are naturally expansive. You're in this. You're, you know, you're in the dessert, but you're you're expanding out. Yes, all the yes, time. I'm expanding out. Yes, yeah. um, there's a there's a character in the book, Father Lajot. Lajot, yes, um, priest. It's a really affecting piece of writing. He's the sort of story of his. He's quite a tormented man, although later quite a happy boar. He gets his you know he gets his druthers quite a lot as a boar. Um, this portrait of him, it's a very affecting portrait of a man, but it's also kind of, it shows how France changes over the course of one man's, yes. one man's life. How different is it to the country you grew up in? You said you were sort of writing it to, to learn about your region. Did it teach you yes, about France? Yes, it's very well? different. Uh, most of my childhood memories are, uh, I, I gave my memories to a character called Lucie. Um, She's to become uh, David's girlfriend, by the way. And uh, so many things have changed in agriculture and uh, the climate change has changed a lot of, also of uh, those marshes, um, even the, the animals you see, the insects you see, mm. everything has changed. But this disappearance of uh, the Catholic Church, for example, is, is, is very, very... I don't know if it's appealing or, uh, but um, that was what struck me a lot because in my childhood, and I, I checked uh, if it was true, I had the impression that there was like a priest almost in, in every village. And it was true until the 80s. And then nowadays there's a priest for like 100 villages. And, uh, and the masses are quite deserted and the churches are not open so this slowly disappearance of uh, the influence of the church like the day-to-day influence of the church i think it was one of the main changes in the late last let's say 30 40 years mm. there is i mean we were talking um said we talked about zone briefly and, and the, what an intense book that is um this book I mean, it does have a lot of, there is a lot of death and suicide and abuse of various sorts in this book, but it is, it's very funny, it's very celebratory, it's got a lot of joy to it. You know, Zone kind of made me want to 
curl up and weep. Uh, and this made me want to go for like autumn walks in the country and make soup <laughs> yes, and that, stews. Yes. Um, how different is it as a writer to, to you know, write something that, that is drenched in violence and is very, it's certainly a very intense reading experience compared to something that has a lot of sort of life and, and love in it? I don't know. Every project is very different. Um, this took me about uh, eight years, something. And uh, uh, meanwhile, I wrote other books. Uh, I remember that I went back always when I, I went back to this region. Then I went with my uh, notes and um, and manuscript with me and and wrote a few pages, a few stories, learned a few things, asked a few people because. Most of the stories in these books are true. I mean, there are true characters. This Jeremy, for example, had a very, very sad, very violent revenge story. Uh, it's true. Mm. And, uh, well, it's true. As far as I know. Um, so this was, it took a long time to write. And um, I think it's... Most of my books are like quite different projects, and uh, uh, but they all last very long for me. You know, like there was ten years for this, for like six or seven years for Zone, mm. uh, was the same for Compass. So uh, I spend a lot of time with them, and and, uh, uh, and the place is also very important. You know, this this book was written there. Uh, almost, I don't know, ninety percent of it was written on the spot. Mm-hmm. So it's um, also an experience in, in, in writing. That's why I like that the project, uh, when the, it's very different, you know, to write. Uh, otherwise, I think I'm, I would just stop. It was always to be the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's true that maybe there's something more, uh, I think it's more, it's more funny. You know, there's more fun in that. Like the, um, because maybe... Why? Probably because nowadays it's a place where uh, there are no, uh, neither no war, violence, or uh, that people live well, let's say, rather well, and they're well off. And uh, so you can afford a good laugh about what was in the past and how. And um, probably I wouldn't write like this about other places, mm. other stories, but. Um, well, I think you need some. Uh, you need some light. You said your next book is about. Yes, it's already violence, out in you know. France. It's, um, Deserté. Desert. It's about. Uh, it's it's about war, and that was very. It's it's about the story of a mathematician throughout the twentieth century, and um, and the story of a deserter from a war. We don't know where, neither when. Mm. And then it's how both stories, um, I don't know if it, well, let's let's, let's leave it like this, like there are two stories and we don't know what will happen with them. Tantalizing, tantalizing. We have some time for questions. We have a microphone. We have a question down here. Um, Matthias, first of all, thank you so much um, for for the for this session. Um, and it's actually fascinating that 
um, David is an anthropologist because I'm studying anthropology myself. Okay. Um, so it behooves me to ask why an anthropologist has this has the idea of an anthropologist been there from the start of your your eight years writing the novel? Yes. And um, other than um, Levi Strauss, is there any other anthropologist whom you might have taken inspiration on during, when you're writing the novel? Yes, of course. Um, that was part of the plan, that to see, because David is writing his PhD, so he has like uh, quite a good knowledge of, uh, of text, although his previous field was on another part of France, but also about... Uh, nature nowadays and agriculture and how people relate to um, agriculture themselves and agricultural history and nowadays. Well, so um, that was also very interesting to see the place I come from through the eyes of a would-be anthropologist. And for that, of course, I use not only Lévi-Strauss, but... Um, and. David's quote is reading uh, Malinowski's journal too at night. That he finds that frightening at times, <laughs> all those bugs and stuff. But uh, there are also many uh, nowadays authors who have written about the countryside today and the French countryside today. And that was for me very, very important also to have like their. Uh, say scientific impression about what does it mean to live in the countryside today, the difference between this blurred distance between city and country and um, uh, and so David uses a lot of those studies too even if he becomes a farmer at the end <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you'll be a farmer in a few years uh, no. Organic drama. <laughs> uh, any other questions? We have one right here. Hi. Um, in the PhD world, there's a joke, um, the more you know, the less you know. Mm. Uh, that's his case, actually. <laughs> yes, that's exactly his case. He arrives with, uh, David arrives at the village with, very sure of himself that he knows this and that and that and that. And then he realized that he knows nothing. And um, <laughs> so that's quite his, his uh, way into his PhD. And he has also, like everybody, very difficult relationship with his PhD director. And um, that, that's quite autobiographical, by the way. Were you exercising some demons? Yes. <laughs> Revenge. And he writes some very, some very rude poems to his, uh, to his PhD supervisor. It's, it's all falling into place. Um, any other questions, Matthias? We have one over here and then one in the front row there. Uh, yeah, thank you. I... Uh, hate to take us this far afield but because of in your books how your characters and you think about what Europe is um, and how the political and the historical you know especially for me in Compass but in Zone and mm -hmm. Gravediggers I can't help but 
you know, wonder constantly how you're thinking about the current war in Europe and the challenges faced. You know, we're here in what is Europe, but has declared itself to not be Europe. Mm-hmm. How do you think about these things and how are you impacted by what we're living through now? Um, Thank you. No, I'm really... Well, uh, that's what the next book is about. And... Of course, for me, this this uh, day of February when Russia invaded Ukraine, it uh, let's say I didn't believe it, uh, and even I remember well the the weeks before, or even the month before, I was saying, "No, it won't happen. They won't do it." And then afterwards, we all thought, "Why wouldn't they do it?" You know, that's, and, and suddenly our whole way of thinking what Europe was, what war meant, what warfare meant to the history of Europe, then when suddenly went back to us like a backlash. Um, especially because the, the, the Russian um, propaganda at that time, and still is, was using very old European formulas like... Uh, uh, denazifying and fighting the Nazis, uh, and uh, and the references to that time where uh, you couldn't not think about the history of Europe, and, and so I think we we entered in the, another moment of our history where. Um, Warfare is against possible. It's again, uh, after maybe 70 years, thinking that it was impossible, that it is. And what's happening in the Middle East right now is, is not showing something else, you know. And it's going to be considered also as a part of it. As a, even it's on completely different... Uh, Bases on different history, but nonetheless, it's still war and um, and the impossibility to enforce peace. Let's say that the international law has no power anymore; it does not exist. It's gone. That's and that's very not only very sad because people are dying, but it's also very really dangerous to see that this construction, this building that we thought was here to stay, uh, that was the United Nations and the international law, is now collapsing and almost does not exist. So uh, not everything is going to be a banquet, even with grave diggers. Thank you for the question. We had a, a question here. Could you pass the microphone Forward, thanks. I was curious about uh, your experience of being translated because you're someone mm-hmm. whose work appears not just in English but in many other languages. And you're also, unlike many writers, you read many of those languages mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess two questions. I mean, the first is, uh, what's your role? I mean, do you, are you in dialogue with your translators? Are you, is, is it a conversation? Uh, and, and also, uh, when, you, when you write, now that you know that 
any book you write is likely to appear in multiple languages. Mm-hmm. Does that affect the French text in any way? Yes, it does. And at times I'm thinking about my, for example, English translator, and I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> of course, because first of all, I, um, Frank Wen is a great translator from from French, also a writer himself, but I, I don't know him personally, but we've been in contact. Uh, and usually my translator into English is Charlotte Mandel, and we are very close, so she texts me every two days asking me, what do you think about this, that? Not only about the book she's translating. But. And it's very, very, very interesting to work with translators because they know better than you do. <laughs> and, um, and at times I, I, I change the original. You know, That happens always with the German translators. <laughs> <laughs> Because the German translators, I don't know how they do it, but they do my research again. <laughs> yes. And they check everything. 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 Yeah. And they, then they write me a mail, or they call me and say, well, this is wrong, this is not like that, this is not exactly like that. Maybe you, you wanted to say this or that, well, okay. And so... Uh, actually, I, I, I changed the French edition uh, at times. Yes, I have to, because they discovered that well, there were mistakes or, or omissions. Or, so um, it's a very, very interesting dialogue always as translators. And for this book, it was, it was really crazy because um, translating food, for example, is impossible. So I said, no, we have to find a way that it's not a, a huge list of French words like that. Well, so we had to, to invent things and make things up. So it, was, it was very interesting. Well, thank you for that. Um, we are at time. The banquet is over, I'm afraid. <laughs> but, um, but the book is for sale. Matthias will sign your book. Um, so, yeah, please join me in thanking Matthias Enna. No, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.